0: scripture reading this evening um, like the last time for the first part of the series. It's going to be in Deuteronomy 29.29. We're going to be turning to a couple places this evening. So when you're turning to Deuteronomy 29, if you want to put a little marker in Deuteronomy 18 because Deuteronomy 18 will be the first place that we go this evening. So Deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law Dear Lord, we pray that you'll be with Ben this evening, that as he speaks your word, that we may hear it, that we may listen, that we may further understand what you have for us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the title of this message this evening is Understanding God's Will. It's the second part in the series. It's titled Staying in Your Lane. So the context and background from the first series that we did, just in case you may not have been here, just for a quick review... We've taken a look at understanding the will of God. The will of God has two aspects to it. The first being the moral will, which contains everything that God has commanded in Scripture. And the second aspect is his sovereign will, everything that he has ordained to come to pass. Now, he has revealed to us his moral will, but the sovereign will he has kept to himself, We also took a look at the hypothetical will, which doesn't exist. Man's ability to make choices freely does not thwart God's overall plan. Rather, God works through our wills to accomplish his purpose, never against it. So understanding the two aspects of God's will last time, tonight we're going to be taking a look at staying in our lanes Within the moral will of God, what He has commanded. And not drifting off in a curious notion, trying to figure out what His sovereign will is. So, as an introduction, going back to when I was four years old, I had that tendency after about five minutes walking hand in hand with my mom in the department store, I would drift off and go my own way. I wasn't much for shopping when I was four years old, still not today. But I'd just get frustrated. I'd get antsy. I just needed to do something else other than look at clothes that were on the rack. So I'd go off on my own. And I was pretty adventurous as a kid. I would dive underneath the clothes racks. I would find all sorts of things pennies, paper clips, clothes pins, whatever you could find. Well, one day I noticed there was a paper clip. Next to the paper clip was an electric outlet where they plug in the vacuum. So I put two and two together. I took the paper clip, opened up the little thing, and I stuck the paper clip in the little outlet. And I remember to this day, a bolt of electricity came out that far I burnt my thumb. Hurt for about 3 days after. Had I stayed by my mom's side and done what she had asked me to do, I would have never found myself in that situation. It's when I became bored. It's when I became frustrated. It's when I wanted to do what I wanted rather than what my mother wanted me to do that I ended up poking my nose in a place where it didn't belong. And the same can be true in our relationship with the Lord. We can become frustrated and discontent with what the Bible reveals. At times we can be like, okay, I've read this before. This isn't enough. I need more. We can have that thought. We can have that feeling going through us. When we go beyond the means of which God has given us to know what to do and how to conduct ourselves. When we stray out of our lanes, pursuing mystical and extra-biblical activities, we can find ourselves getting in all sorts of trouble. So some questions to ask. Where is the foundation of our support? The place where we go in understanding God's will. Are there places that are off limits? Are there practices? Are there things that we can do that are against God's moral will? They're an abomination to him. He does not want us to do these things. Is it a sin to pursue God's sovereign or secret will? We know his moral will in Scripture. But is it a sin to go after the sovereign will of God? So we're going to do this evening kind of like when you have a campfire and it's just about to die down and you rake the coals over once again to throw a new wood on the fire. That's what we're going to do with our hearts. We're going to take the rake over our hearts and see, have we experienced, have we actually participated in some of these examples this evening that speak of us going after Christian mystical experiences in order to understand the sovereign will of God. So first of all, the foundation of God's will We stand upon God's word alone. It's called the sufficiency of the word. And what do we mean by sufficiency? The sufficiency of scripture means the Bible contains everything that is necessary for salvation and for a life of holy living. It is the supreme authority over all things. It provides the believer with the truth that is needed to be reconciled back to God and then live according to God's will. These may be familiar verses, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So to be equipped for every good work The Bible is the sufficient base on which we are anchored to. So now when it comes to understanding and applying God's will, the Bible is the only source. The Bible is the only authoritative source we consult. Now, what does the Bible say? We have pastors. We have elders. We have deacons. We have other means by which the Bible prescribes to us that we can utilize. But that is all based upon what the scripture teaches. So if we want to know what God's will is, we always come to the word. Sufficiency means nothing should be added or taken away from scripture. We are to seek no other source of guidance. So the Bible gives us a lot of detail about God's moral will, meaning what he requires and how he wants us to live. But it also gives us insights into the sovereign will. Prophecy, for instance, where, do, where does a believer go when he dies? Where does an unbeliever go where he dies? Also gives us information on the second coming of Christ. So we do have things that the Lord has told us. Things about his secret will or his sovereign will that are going to come to pass. But he hasn't given us the complete picture. And we are to remain content in with what he has given us. The problem comes in when we desire to seek things beyond what he has told us, what he has revealed to us in scripture, and to pursue those secret things for our own benefit, such as knowing the future, or when am i going to die, or should i do this or should i do that. Deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Whenever we attempt to look beyond the veil, We are sinning. We are in a practice that the Lord is against. Now, I told you to turn to Deuteronomy 18. We're going to be in verses 9 through 12. It's a section here in Deuteronomy that talks about, it warns us about pagan practices that a person utilizes. When the children of Israel were to go into the land, they were going to see all kinds of pagan practices. They do the same thing. They're using these pagan practices for their own personal benefits, to gain wisdom and insight into the future, into things that are forbidden. We see it today in our culture. We've seen Ouija boards, tarot cards, pendulums. All of those kinds of things are to pierce beyond the veil to gain information. These pagan practices. And this is what Deuteronomy here is speaking against. So this pagan practice that we're about to read, it's often called the occult. And that very word occult means secret or hidden. So even within a non believer, even within somebody who's not a Christian, there's this desire to peer, to peek beyond the veil, to see what the unknown is. And in verse 9 here in Deuteronomy 18, God's saying, when you come into the land, or so Moses is saying, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among anyone, any of you, Who burns his son or daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So to many of us, this makes sense. We understand the occult. It's of the demonic nature. We're to stay away from it. But the problem is, we as Christians seek to understand God's sovereign or secret will by kind of blending these practices together or blending the spirit or the intent of the practice, and we call it Christian mysticism. Christians desire to seek out the hidden things just like non Christians, we just use different methods. We try to turn God or the Bible into some type of magic eight ball that can give us the answer that we need right now at this moment. And the Bible strictly, specifically tells us not to pursue any form of these mystical practices since he's already given us everything that we need, everything that is necessary in scripture. So the question is, what are some of these practices that Christians utilize, Christian Mystical practices. First one, example number one. How many of you are familiar with Judges chapter 6 and putting out the fleece with Gideon? If you would turn with me to Judges chapter 6, it's going to take a look at this. A lot of times Christians will read through the Bible, maybe through their devotional readings, and they'll come across a passage like this. And they'll see this individual named Gideon who puts out a fleece to understand the will of God. And then we interpret that as, okay, so Gideon did it, so therefore it's biblical. Can't we do it as well? So in Judges 6, verses 36, we see Gideon here. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you've said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. So now notice the error in Gideon's thinking. Verse 36. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Notice God had already spoken to Gideon. God had already told Gideon that he was going to be successful, but that wasn't enough for Gideon. He needed more. So he puts out a fleece. What that's showing is a lack of faith in what God has said. Look at, go back in the chapter 6 here at verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Now this is before we we just read it. It's coming before. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the land of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So this was the conversation between Gideon and God before. And then as we read in 36, he's having his moment of doubt. And now he wants to put out a fleece as kind of a second type of verification. When God tells us something, it doesn't need to be verified. If that's our way of thinking, it's showing a serious lack in our faith and our relationship with him. And that's what Gideon's fleece is showing us here. There was no need for the fleece. God had already spoken The same is true for us as well. How many times do we find ourselves bargaining with God? Okay, Lord, if you do this, then I'll do this. Lord, give me a sign. If such and such happens, then I know it's your will. We do these type of things. We may not even consciously realize it, but we play this bargaining game with God that, well, okay, if I can get God to do this, then I know for sure that I can go in this direction. It's the same type of thing that Gideon was doing. Gideon's act is never used in Scripture as an example for us to follow. What we're really doing is what we're putting out a fleece. What we're really saying is, we've already decided in our minds where we want to go, And we're just trying, in a sense, to rationalize our way with God to get over in that direction. We are not to put out a fleece when we know what God has already stated to us in his word. Now think about this. Let's put it in a more practical sense. A married couple in a relationship starts to think amongst themselves, should I stay married? Wouldn't I be happier with somebody else? Wouldn't God want me to be with a more Christian spouse? These types of thoughts start entering into our head. We start thinking, hmm, maybe God does want me to marry. And this is exactly what Gideon was doing. Do you see where this can lead? Where God has clearly spoken, he has clearly spoken. There's no way around it. But generally, there's an, a motivation within us to somehow get around this and create these little circumstances to try to think we can manipulate what God has already clearly said. <clears throat> An example, one time I was working with a guy. The pastor of their church had died. And they needed to bring in a new pastor. And the next time I spoke to him, he said, hey, we got a new pastor. I'm like, yeah, who is he? And he said, well, it's a female. And I said, well, doesn't the scripture teach that you know, God clearly calls men to be pastors? He says, yeah, but we prayed on it. as a a church, and we felt that this is where God had guided us to go. So what we see is a perfect example of where the scriptures clearly speak, but yet we have a different motive or a different agenda or a lack of faith, and we somehow try to compromise to get to the place that we want to go. So that's the first example. Second example. What about Acts chapter 1? We see the apostles casting lots. How about rolling dice or how about flipping a coin or opening up the Bible and wherever your finger lands, this is God speaking. This type of thinking. Now go back to Acts 1. We're thinking, didn't the apostles do this in Acts? We remember Judas had died. So the 12 now became 11. They had to fill that spot. So don't we have a biblical precedence of casting lots to see God's decision? And what we have to understand in this circumstance is that it's an exceptional circumstance. And it's the last time we see this in the Bible. But notice what the apostles are doing. In Acts chapter 1, they're turning to the book of Psalms to realize that there needs to be a replacement. They use God's moral will, meaning Scripture, in their guiding process of determining their next step. They realize that there's 120 people That are in front of them, but they narrow it down to two people using scripture. The first key thing is that they had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry from the beginning to the resurrection. And the second thing, the individual must be a man. So already using what God had already spoken in his word, they deduced it down to two different people. This is the last time we see this in scripture. And later on, as an example... When Paul's speaking to Timothy as the qualifications for an elder, notice he never uses casting a lot as an example. What does he say? He gives them a list of biblical qualifications to make the choice. Husband of one wife, able to teach, not given over to drunkenness. So what we're seeing is after this one last time that it was used to fill in for that 12th apostle, lots were never used again. It's always the word of God. Always the sufficient base for where we go. So the third example. What about those who seek after signs? The truth is, we are never told in Scripture to seek after signs. Actually, the exact opposite is true. It's forbidden. Jesus says in Matthew twelve thirty nine, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after signs. Even Satan can produce counterfeit signs. Matthew 24 says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise, performing great signs and wonders, as to lead astray, even if possible, the elect. So those who are pursuing the sign, Jesus says the exact opposite. A wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after that. In the Bible, when we see signs and miracles happening, what was the purpose? The purpose of these signs and this is pretty much the foundational point this evening that we need to take home. The foundational purpose of the signs in the New Testament was to give confirmation that these were true apostles and that they were truly writing the true word of God. It was to authenticate their ministry as apart from the false ministries that were taking place at the time. Now, today, in the day that we live, revelation has been complete. The apostolic era is over. The apostolic era ended with the death of the last apostle, which was John. <clears throat> Ephesians 2:20 says, "the foundation of the church is upon the apostles and the prophets." So have signs become completely finished. In a sense, yes, they have. There is no longer any need to verify what the apostles were teaching. The word of God is complete. Therefore, signs are no longer necessary. We are not receiving any new revelation from God any longer. Therefore, signs are no longer needed. The Bible never teaches us to follow after signs. So then you may be asked in the fourth point, what about dreams and visions? Same thing holds true for those who seek after signs, for those who seek after dreams and visions. God's word is complete. He speaks through his word. He guides us by his spirit. We are never told to seek after God or expect God for us to speak to us in a dream. So the confusion with this comes in is somebody can ask, but what about the biblical examples where we see God guiding people in dreams? If he did it back then, why can't he do it today? Again, these are rare occurrences that took place before the completion of the writing of Scripture. After the apostolic era ended, there was no longer any need for God to speak to a person in his dream because we have the Word. So a question. <clears throat> if I have a vision, or if I have a dream one night, that I was elected President of the United States, does that mean it's a sign from God? Does that mean I should run for office? And the obvious answer is no. If I had a dream that I pitched up a, picked up a hitchhiker and I shared the gospel with him, does that mean that this is from God? Does that mean that the next hitchhiker that I see out there, I should pick him up because I think God's speaking to me in a dream? The answer is no. If I had a dream <clears throat> that I spoke to a dead relative and he told me he was doing fine, that he was in heaven, Does that mean that God's speaking to me and trying to tell me that my dead relative is in heaven? No. It's amazing to see how much stock and how much faith people put into these experiential, mystical-type things. Dreams, on their own sense, are very confusing. We barely remember them. They don't make any type of sense. But there's a tendency within us to go after those things that we experience, even though they're very dim and bleak, Rather than follow what the Lord has taught us in his word, Jesus saying the very scriptures cannot be broken. So there's something within us that attracts us to this type of thinking. But if we think it through logically and we think it through biblically, these type of practices are forbidden in scripture. Trying to pierce that veil and getting beyond the secret will of God is forbidden in scripture. Finally, the last example What about those who claim that God speaks to them? Saying, God told me this, or God told me that. Just because somebody claims that God is speaking to them does not mean that God has done that. Or that we're even required to listen to what they're saying. People can use this in a very evil way to manipulate others. And it's purely subjective. Think about the influence. Think about the damage a pastor of a church could do if they walked up to somebody in their congregation and they said, God told me this, or God told me you should do that. You know, pastors are held with pretty high respect. And if a pastor were to take that on and and start doing that, how much of an influence there would be. And let's just say the person didn't do what the pastor said and it turns out bad. They're going to think God's mad at them or God's against them. Versus if a pastor comes up to you and says, you know, the Bible says you shouldn't be doing this or the Bible says you should be doing that, the Bible becomes the authority, not the pastor. They're not, when somebody is trying to say that God has spoken to them, this is very dangerous grounds and it can be very bad. God guides us to speak objectively through his word. The word of God is clear. The word of God is consistent. So if you're a single person and somebody comes up to you and says, God told me last night that you and me are supposed to be together, which happens quite often. You are not obligated in any way to listen to what they're telling you. God doesn't do this. He may give you wisdom to understand that the person that you're dating might be the one that the Lord wants you to be with. He'll give you wisdom. He'll give you insight to see these things. James chapter 1 says, ask for wisdom. He'll give it to you. But it's never going to come as an audible voice. It's never going to come as, okay, go tell so-and-so that I'm telling you to be with that person. It's dangerous ground when we start saying that God has said from our own personal experience and not from the word. If someone comes up to you and says, God told me such and such, do not believe them. So many people in the Christian community are held in bondage because of people who practice stuff like this. Since they believe that the gift of prophecy continues today, how do I know that God isn't speaking through him right now? There's always that question, how do I know? What if God is? If God's still speaking prophetically to people today, if you hold to that position, the door's wide open for all sorts of deception to come in. Great damage has been done. Once in a while, a person can be guessed right. People are smart. They can figure things out. <clears throat> they can see what's going to happen with the lifestyle you're leading. And they come up to you and say, God told me this. It's easy to predict those kinds of things. It's easy to manipulate people with this. It's very dangerous stuff. This places a person under fear and this places people under the authority of man and not the word of God. Even those people who believe that the gifts, the sign gifts are done today, that prophecy has ceased, they still can fall into this trap, into this type of thinking. The individual who says, God has spoken to me, you know what they're saying? They're saying that they have prophetic status. They're saying that they should be held to the standard of a prophet. And if you read what God requires of a prophet, they have to be right every single time. If they're wrong once, they're not of him. So if you're going to judge a person, if they're going to tell you God says, they're claiming prophetic status by saying that to you. People may say, well, God told me to change churches, to find a different job, or to marry a certain person. And it's true. In the Bible, God has told people, like Jeremiah, that he picked him for a specific purpose. But again, we have to look at the context in which we're reading this. Rare example in the Old Testament. To claim God is speaking to you is to claim that you have prophetic status. And the prophetic status ended with the time of the apostles. So if you're going to say God's speaking to you, you put yourself in Ephesians 2.20 as the foundation upon which the church was built. You are now included in that category. And now do you see the danger that lies in this type of thinking? So what's the motivation behind Christian mysticism? Why do so many Christians get caught up into this? We got three examples here in concluding the study tonight. If you'd turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. we'll pick it up in verse 30 <clears throat> why do so many christians fall prey to christian mysticism the first amp- first answer is we just simply don't trust the lord we're afraid of what the future holds we feel inadequate on what might be coming our way we're relying on our own strength and our own intellect and we want to look beyond the veil To see what is coming for us in the future. We want to have the control over the things that God has sovereignly ordained to come to pass. We don't trust in the Lord. We want that control. What does Jesus say about this? Matthew 6.30. And we've read this, I don't know how many times, but for some reason we just seem to drift. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all. So, when reading this, the Bible being sufficient, the Bible being the source on which we anchor ourselves to, God's telling us not to be filled with anxiety. Not to worry about these things, but to trust in him. This is an absolute 100% guarantee. But this does not mean that we won't face difficult times, that we won't be facing trials. It does not mean that. But what it's saying is God will be walking alongside of you as you're going through the things that are coming your way. So rather than being self-reliant and wanting control, we walk in fellowship with the Holy Spirit as he brings us into each new day with him. Nothing can come your way without first being filtered through the hands of the Lord. And we have this promise in Scripture. Number two, the second reason why we fall into Christian mysticism, we're not content with God's moral will. We want more. We don't want general knowledge. We want specific knowledge. We want absolute certainty. We want mystical experiences. They bring in excitement and they rejuvenate us. The Word of God has become stale. And if you feel like you're in this type of a scenario, you've fallen out of fellowship with the Lord. Once the Word of God doesn't become the driving force in your life, there's a problem. There's a relationship issue between you and the Lord. Now, the Lord may guide us into places where we don't want to go. We may get laid off work. We may be diagnosed with an illness. We might hear bad news from the doctor. So what we do is we, sinfully, we start seeking after safety. That living in this fallen world does not offer us. We want God to promise us something that he does not necessarily have to give us. This fear and this anxiety that we have We're not content with what he has given us. We want to make sure that we're going to be completely safe all the way through life. We're not content with the situation. We're not trusting in God in these areas of our lives. Third, we lack responsibility. And this is a tough one. This is a tough one to hear. The honest truth is at times we become lazy. We become irresponsible when we seek after these mystical experiences. Why is that? Because we simply just want God just to directly download this into our mind or just to directly tell us what we need to do. So then when this happens, whatever comes to pass, well, God just told me to do it. I'm not to blame. God just told me to do this in a dream or a vision or I just got a a word from the Lord and this is what I'm supposed to do. What we have this tendency of doing is God just tell me what to do. Just just give me the answer. I don't want to have to do anything. I don't want to have to study scripture, seek the counsel of other Christian people, elders in the church. These types of things are, we are to pursue the whole word of God. We're to look into scripture, ask God for wisdom. And then with all of this wisdom that we have received from the Lord, we are to make the correct decision. And that takes a lot of time and that takes a lot of thorough biblical reading. And this is the area at times where we tend to put aside hoping that God will just somehow miraculously show it to us when he wants us in his word. We want the easy way out. We want the quick fix. Now, we read in Psalms, in the um, call to worship, remember Psalm 1's description of the godly person. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and that he meditates on day and night. God gives us his word for us to draw nearer to him. But we're always looking for the other way. We're always looking for that path of least resistance. And if a time is coming in the future that's going to be difficult, it causes us to set aside the Word of God and to take it on in our own pursuit and in our own strength. God's moral will has already defined our options, God's moral will has already set the boundaries on how He wants us to conduct ourselves in life. And within these boundaries, is the freedom to make our choices. There's no specific right or wrong with the parameters as long as we find ourselves seeking God's glory in all that we do. So if we have a question about a future event, whether it's somebody to marry or whether it's a job or whether it's moving to a different location, and we're wondering, okay, Lord, what is your will in all of this? The foundation that we want to be standing on in the actions that we want to be taking in the pursuit of this are to what is bringing the glory to God the most. Are we prayerfully seeking after guidance? Are we asking him wisdom? Are we talking with other Christians in the church who may have gone through the same circumstances that we're facing right now? Are we looking into his word, specifically into the passages, into the context that deal with my immediate situation? Are we trusting in the Lord that he's going to accomplish the task at hand? If we find ourselves doing these things, Outside of all of this and the wisdom that God is giving us, we're free to make the choice that we want to make. It is wrong to close yourself off from the world, to isolate yourself, and to say, I'm not going to do anything until I hear God's voice or receive some kind of sign, like Gideon. That's not the way the Lord has prescribed us to do it because he doesn't work that way. We'll never hear from him in that regard. God does not work like this. And this point here is what we're going to pick up next time in part three. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for giving us everything that is necessary in living a life of godliness. Just praying, Lord, for more faith. Praying, Lord, for more wisdom. Praying, Lord, for more trust that regardless of the circumstance we're in i'm not going to look we're not going to look to the left we're not going to look to the right we're going to look straight into your face rely on the indwelling holy spirit and search the scriptures to see what you have and how you want us to conduct ourselves when facing difficult times lord this isn't easy stuff to hear lord we face various trials and various circumstances lord I'll, give us the ambition and the desire to set aside the flesh to set aside that desire for the mystical, and to pursue only your word, that a relationship with you, if it has become stale, that it gets rejuvenated, Lord, to seek after your counsel through your word. Thanking you, Lord, for the church here. Thanking you, Lord, for the fellowship and everything you've given us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.